Welcome to the DJE Podcast, where you will learn about real estate investing from real-life examples. Here's your host, Devin Elder. Hello, and thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Our guest is my friend, John Kasman. Known John for several years now, and um, he's actually a repeat guest on the DJE podcast. So it was great to check in with John and see what he's been up to the last couple of years. He's a multifamily investor and has a lot in his story today that I think you guys are going to like. We talk about his corporate career and how he's kind of midst, in the midst of things falling apart in 2008 and how that sort of pushed him into entrepreneurship and real estate. Uh, after seeing the uncertainty and some of the corporate situations he was in at the time, we talk about his first project, which was a house hack, a, du a duplex where he rented out the other side, and then his journey into multifamily, a three unit and then an eight unit, and then on to syndicating deals, raising capital and getting into you know, hundreds of units, these large type of multifamily deals that we talk about a lot today. Uh, John's a great guy, wealth of knowledge, very transparent in his uh, in his stories, his successes, and his challenges along the way. So I know you're going to enjoy it. Before we jump in, if you are not seeing our projects, DJE projects that we put out, and you would like to, you can register and get signed up for that at djetexas.com. We can send you case studies and all that fun stuff. And secondly, if you're interested in becoming an operator and running these large multifamily deals, we put together an entire ecosystem for that at apartmenteducators.com. We've got events, courses, training, plug into the network, all the pieces you need to make those large deals happen at apartmenteducators.com. All right, let's jump into this episode with Mr. John Kasman. John, welcome. Nice to see you again. How are you? Devin, I'm excellent, man. Thank you for having me back. I'm excited to be here today and uh, talk to all your wonderful listeners and uh, excited to be on the show. Yeah, well, glad to have you. This is a uh, repeat, repeat uh, guest, so good to connect. It's been a lot, little while we had you on episode 80, and this is episode 160-something, so it's a little while ago. Uh, excited to dive in and see what you've been up to during that, during that time. For folks that haven't connected you that or connected with you that are not in your world, let's let's hear the backstory. How did you get into real estate? You know, and and what does the what does it look like today? Walk us through that journey. Yeah, well, like many of your listeners, I was in corporate America. I was in corporate for 15 years doing advertising yep. and marketing for big brands. I worked at General Motors for one point, uh, working on uh, GMC, Buick, Pontiac brand. If you guys remember the Pontiac brand. I was a part of the last team on Pontiac, uh, but also worked on an agent or at an agency on brands like Coors Light, Nike, Mountain Dew, and did a lot of different campaigns over my time. Um, enjoyed it, loved the work I was doing. But the way I got into real estate, if I wind it back to my time at GM, I was there when we went through bankruptcy. So I mentioned being a part of the team that closed Pontiac. Well, that was a right. part of that structured bankruptcy. So, you know, at that time, Almost daily, I had anxiety and my peers had anxiety. What was going to happen to us? What was going to happen to right. our jobs? What was going to happen with these brands? If we close this brand, well, what happens? Like, are they going to lay all of us off? Are they going to move some of us? So I went through that on almost a daily basis from like really a six to nine month period, you know, because that started really in so April going, or May. 
you're going yeah. through the bankruptcy and just showing up to work every day doing you gotta, whatever you You got to remember, though, we didn't know it was bankruptcy at first, right? I mean, I it, got you. if okay. you the financial issues became clear around May 2008. Right. So I think around June or July is when the, you know, the big three CEOs flew uh, down to Washington to yes. ask for yes. some aid or whatever. Right. And so it was a long time and then it was an election year. So then it was what's going to happen. And the financial industry had their issues. And then it was, you know, kind of a, you know, a lame duck presidency. So, you know, uh, they just said, well, we'll wait to see. So former President Bush said, well, let the new guy handle it, right? So we had yep. to wait until Obama got in office and figure out, okay, well, what is he going to do? So there was a long period of time where we didn't know what was going to happen. And even though sure. you talk about a bankruptcy, well, what does that mean? You know, what is bankruptcy? What does a structured bankruptcy mean? So it was a lot of anxiety because we had no idea what this actually meant, what it would look like, how many people need to be let go, what brands would get let go, all of that stuff. And um, they wanted to take it down to two brands. They wanted only Chevrolet and Cadillac. They didn't want any of the other brands. So we, you know, fought that process, whatever, kept GMC and Buick. Um, but the, the point is, picture going through that for a six to nine month window every single day and watching the news. And it's not right. just some random figurehead. It's your boss's boss. The woman you just talked to down the hall. Yeah. is now talking on CNN about we have to sell 15 million vehicles as an industry or we're going to be bankrupt. I just asked you how things are <laughs> going. You told me to keep my head down. And <laughs> right. here you are telling the world, if we don't hit this number, everybody losing a job, right? Oh, so picture that level of anxiety, right? So yep, that's what I yep. went through on a day-to-day basis. Oh, uh, none, nonetheless, that anxiety was obviously throughout the entire organization. Um, the positive is once we went through that structured bankruptcy, Things definitely improved. Uh, I actually did really well and thrived in the organization and became one of the, you know, worked on Buick, which became one of the fastest growing brands in America. Uh, I was a part of a team and I was personally recognized as one of the uh, top advertisers and marketers in the country. So all that momentum did well, but I also never forgot that. So that anxiety sure. stayed with me. And my father was, you know, my father's blue collar worker. He's been on strike for companies and I've seen my mom get laid off. So I just wanted to take more ownership on my future. And real estate was the vehicle that I saw as the right path. Again, didn't feel comfortable investing in Detroit at the time. I moved to Chicago, went to an advertising agency. And part of my logic was, all right, well, now that I'm in Chicago, I can start to invest. And that's exactly what I did. Uh, we started with a house hack, bought a two unit, lived in one unit, rented out the other, and then slowly started building our portfolio. Um, but I kept running out of my own money, uh, learned about other people's money, hired a mentor, and ultimately started to scale into larger commercial apartments raising capital and working with other investors. So uh, to date, we've partnered with others to invest in over $100 million worth of apartments. And uh, we're continuing to grow that. But it really stems back from that time, you know, at GM. And I had a lot of time to think, right? Every day you're driving to work and you're yes. trying to figure out if, if today is going to be the day or next week going to be the week. And um, I remember they had this huge room, huge room, like I forgot what floor, but uh, I went to the store. I was not supposed to be there, but someone's like, you need to go up there and check it out. Well, they had literally every employee's name in our department. So picture GM Global. So I was oh, in work service and sales and marketing. So VSSM is what it's called. And um, they had every employee's name and it had either a, a green sticker next to your name. They had a yellow sticker or red sticker, right? That's not what you want to see. <laughs> So when you see, when you see uh -huh. how they're displaying, it's like if you're a football player or an athlete, right? 
and you went into you know the gm's draft room and you just see what they really yeah. think about every single player in the draft it's like wow i'm a sticker you guys like everything you do gets broken down to a yay or nay right when we talk about the elevator pitch that stuff is real okay in corporate they don't have time to sit there and explain that john chasm is a fine young professional and he's a star but it's just hey what do you think of that kid it's good you got one (laughs) impression he's good is the best you're getting right there's no explanation either you're a thumbs up or we can do better and it just (laughs) when you see it on a wall you know kind of three walls of the entire department i'm like wow this is how they break us all down into little little pieces we are just we are dots on the board man that's all we were so anyway that uh was very enlightening to me um i never i think some people get in corporate and you get really caught up in your title and don't get me wrong i mean i was going to the super bowl and uh maximum parties and i'm you know i'm in my 20s and i'm single dude i'm crushing it. like going to maximum 100 parties and final four and hanging with 50 cent on video shoots and it's a good but, time it's great gig right great gig yep. i love my job but i never forgot something i learned as an intern and um there was a creative director who was going on all these shoots he actually just did a shoot for a uh, car brand and we were just coming back and, you know, we're young interns, like excited, we're like, oh, where'd you stay? What'd you do? And he's telling us all the stuff. And he, he kind of realized that we were really, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid and that was not his intention. So he stopped it and he grabbed his business card and he said, I want to be clear. All of that is for the title on this business card. The creative director of this agency went to go do all of that. This has nothing to do with me. And you want to work your career. You want to work your business and your life so that the perks you get are for your name, not the title you hold at a company. Yeah, And I, it just it just stuck with me because so many of my peers felt a sense of entitlement, but it was all tied to the title they held at the company. Right. And if you took them out of that seat and they lost that power or that influence, they felt like they lost a part of themselves. And I never wanted to feel so attached to that, that I couldn't focus on what I really wanted to build for me and my family. And that's not a knock when anyone's in that position. It is to recognize that all those things are temporary. You are not your job. You are not your title. You are not the company you work for. And you should focus on building assets that set you up to live the life you want to live. I love it. I love it. Yeah, there's a very interesting that happens, a thing that happens in larger organizations with titles, and it turns into this whole social dynamic, and you can't avoid the politics once you get to a certain size organization. Um, but sometimes those things are not correlated to skills. That It really is kind of tied to, to title, which is a weird thing to behold. Yeah, absolutely. And you see that, and you see the way it plays out with other folks. And, uh, you know, again, it can be limiting, because I, I think part of it is, it's hard to walk away from something when you have that level of influence. I mean, I, I right. had a hundred million dollar advertising budget that I could deploy and oversee. And, and again, I, I was, I was technically like more an advertising manager, right? So I'm not trying to say I was like the senior director or whatever. Sure. Um, but when I moved over to the agency side, I was, I was, you know, group account director. I did oversee it. Um, but nonetheless, it's just, it, it could be a slippery slope if you allow that to dictate your decisions, because now maybe you're, making decisions for a title or for a salary, but not necessarily trying to create the life that you want to live. 
Yeah, hundred percent. I, I, I certainly remember in my corporate days, how much energy I felt like was being on spent on things that were not productive. Um, and you can get caught up in a lot of those things that it's like, is this generating anything positive for the company or for me? A lot of times, no, you're just kind of burning cycles on that kind of stuff. I want to get into your, uh, your first house hack was this, how'd you get inspired to do that? Did, did you know somebody, did a buddy tell you about it? Did you read a book? Cause that first step super important, right? Or did it just make sense? You go, Hey, we could pay some of our rent if we just did this. How did you approach that? So I think it's really important to figure out a strategy. So at that time, when I was going through all that anxiety, um, I started learning about real estate and understanding how to invest in reading books. And I, I mean, I probably read like seven or eight books on real estate investing, subscribing to different blogs. And I tried to read everything I could uh, about investing, but I was still in Detroit at the time. So it wasn't until I moved to Chicago where I felt like I was finally set up to begin investing. And at that moment, I got married as well. So the first one was something that we kind of talked about. I wanted to have an investment property first. I think I had heard the term and it was owner-occupied is you know what they were talking about back then. It wasn't a house hack. So it was right. like owner-occupied, you live in the two to four unit and rent out the others. And in Chicago, there are a lot of two to four units. So the strategy is very popular and it made a lot of sense because you can get great financing. So I knew that right. um, a two to four unit is where I wanted to go. I actually didn't even know about the financing. I just knew Chicago had a lot of two flats and you know three flats. So that made a lot of sense, but also going to networking events. And attending these mm -hmm. events where you're meeting people who are actually doing these strategies, that made it real to me. Because up until 100%. that point, it was just stuff I read in books and blogs, right? I didn't know anyone who was actually doing this. So it seemed right, but I kind of would question myself, say, dude, I know you read that in a book, but I don't know anybody else doing this. It seems like, you know, seems like a, a fraud case or a Ponzi scheme or something like, right. I don't feel like people actually do this. Like there's something you're missing. What are you missing? So when I met other people who were doing it, and I mean, I, I almost directly asked them, like, what am I missing? <laughs> and they were like, nothing, it's work. You know, you got to be a landlord, you got to screen tenants, you have to figure out how to repair stuff or hire a maintenance guy. So, but you get their resources for all of that. And right. once I kind of realized how to solve those challenges, I became more comfortable doing it. So for us, we put together a list of properties we were coming across. We hired someone who was our agent who had experience investing with the same strategy, uh, but they were also an investor and an, an agent and they were also a contractor. So it was great because they kind of had a trifecta. That's a triple threat oh, right there. It was great. I mean, it was the perfect Rare. partner for us in that first deal because they basically walked in every property and they would say, hey, here's what I like, here's what I don't like, I'm concerned with this. And if we looked at four or five, they would say, hey, out of the four, I like these two a lot. I would think about moving forward with those two. I'll probably hold off on these two, right? So we had that guidance and almost a little bit of handholding on those early deals. And I just think it's really important to have the right people in your corner when you're starting out because you've never done it before. Having some fear, having some remorse, some, some concerns, the butterflies, like all of that is normal. So you want to be able to turn to somebody who's more experienced, who's actually done it and have them hold your hand and say, it's okay. <laughs> I know you're a little scared. It's yep. okay. Um, we, we're going to plan for this. We're going to have some money set aside for reserves, which means basically we're probably going to miss something. There's going to be an expense that pops up that we don't know about, but we have a bucket of money that we can tap into if we need to. So don't be scared. You're going to be fine. 
you know, let's move forward. And that's exactly what we did. And of course, there was something that popped up that we weren't, you know, prepared for. But you realize this is what all the planning was for. This is why we had a budget. This is why we had reserves. And this is why we had somebody of a team who could figure out ways to cut costs. And that that really helped tremendously. And I think the big insight I would tell your listeners is whenever you are investing in real estate, make sure you're surrounding yourself with people with more experience than you and listen to them. You know, they have the experience. Listen to that feedback, but take the time to find the right people. You know, just because someone did one deal doesn't mean that they're very knowledgeable. And sometimes you can find someone who maybe hasn't done a deal or maybe doesn't have a lot of experience, but they're extremely knowledgeable, right? I mean, con- brokers, um, you know, contractors, some of them are not investors, but they are around the industry. They're around the work enough where they're very savvy. And again, podcasts, you know, those are other things where if you're listening to hundreds of other investors, right? We talked about 160 episodes of this show. Well, that's 160 people who have talked to you about their strategies for investing that you can gain some insight from. So the more you're listening, the more you're getting that feedback, the easier it becomes. And then you can start to recognize like what's familiar, what's consistent. And then if there is something that's a little bit different, you can ask better questions. Why is this different? What are you doing that's different from everyone else who's doing it this way? And now you can start to really understand the nuances of it. I love it. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. You really can't underscore the importance of, of your team and leaning on the team. I think about that deal you did. It's like, that could have gone in a lot of different ways. You know I mean? There's contractor horror stories. Everybody's got them. I've got them. You've got them. Uh, them. (laughs) And and it sounds like, you know, you just kind of got off on the right foot there, which is great because that could have been a different story. If that first deal went bad or you lost a bunch of money or something, it's like that for some folks that's, that's game over. You know? We wouldn't have been there. I, I promise you, it absolutely would have been game over for me because that was the first test, right? This Even here, that thing wasn't real. And I'll, I'll tell you this too. And I don't tell this to everybody, but I think this is important to know. Part of the reason I was comfortable pulling the trigger on that first deal is because I was house hacking, living in one of the units. Yeah. Well, I was already renting before that. And my right. lease was getting ready to come up and we were waiting to find another property. So we wanted to get a, we wanted to go month to month. And the landlord said no. He actually said yes. And then his wife came back and said no, because she was eight months pregnant and didn't want to be dealing with trying to show the unit. So we were kind of on the fence. Oh, we'll, we'll just keep looking at stuff. Maybe we'll pull the trigger. Maybe we won't. And then we found out, well, you're going to have to move either way. So it was like, oh, wow. oh well, I don't want to rent again for another year. So we went through our list and said, all right, out of the properties that were still available, what did we really like? What, why didn't we pick this one? Okay, let's go back and look at it again. And we went toward it again and said, I think this could work. And then we put in our offer. And so that strategy is so great because I didn't have to treat it like a pure investment. I needed a place to live. I was about to be homeless. So I needed an apartment. And if I can own the apartment building, that made it a little bit easier. So for me, it's like, worst case scenario, I'm in a great neighborhood. So I feel good about the neighborhood. I did a ton of research on the area. Um, So once we landed on the area and we only looked at apartment buildings in that area. So once we landed on the area and I felt like we had a good apartment building a two, two flat that we could own, it made it a little easier to move forward. And to your point, having that contractor agent um, who we had a great relationship with, and he showed us projects he was working on stuff in his own portfolio. So we felt really comfortable with him. And that was key because if we didn't have success on that first deal, um, there's a strong chance that we would have said, you know, I just don't think this is right for us. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Well, that, that's a great project and it's a great story. And I think a great start for your investing career. 
you know, at some point you're buying hundreds of units of multifamily. I think in a lot of people's mind, that's like, well, geez, that's a, that's a big disconnect. I mean, it's, it's important big, to go big from, leap, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you yeah. got to go from nothing to something and you got to do your first deal. And, and a lot of people don't even ever do that um, outside of maybe their primary residence or whatever. But so, you know, what pulled you into the multifamily world? There's so many ways to do real estate. I mean, there's countless, countless ways. What, what brought you into this world of like big hundreds of units, you know, which a lot of people I think can't even, can't even wrap their mind around. Um, and that's what, you know, what you guys are doing today. What, how, what was that transition like? Well, I think one of the biggest things for us was focusing on networking and networking Love for it. education purposes, not just, Hey, I want to meet a bunch of people, but like we were novices, right? Even when we bought the two unit, I mean, we didn't, we weren't experts at that point. It's like, okay, we have one, two unit how do we not met, mess this up, right? That was our thinking. So surround our, ourselves with other investors, talking to them. Hey, what are you putting in your leases? Uh, how are you managing this? How do you handle security deposits? Like we made it a point to attend networking events at least once a month. And that also kept us sane because we didn't know anyone else who was doing this. So when you mm -hmm. invest in real estate, you buy a property and all of your friends are hanging out on Friday night at the bar, and they're looking at you kind of crazy, like, wait a minute, you make X amount of money, you saved it all, and you put it all into an apartment building, or you put it all into this, you know, two unit, and then we saved up and bought another one. So they're like, what are you doing? Um, you can feel like a, you know, you feel ostracized a bit, right? Like, well, am I doing the right thing? Like, maybe I shouldn't be doing this or whatever, right? So surrounding yourself with other people in that space made it, um, it made it make sense for me, because I knew I wasn't crazy by hanging with the people who were in that space. The reason that's important is I started attending an event, uh, particularly uh, one that a young lady was hosting every month. It was closer than the RIA event I used to go to a lot. And I just, you know, trying to drive an hour out for an event once a month can be a lot. Um, so having one that was just 20, 25 minutes away saved us a lot of time. Uh, so I started going to that and just being consistent. And I met someone who had nine units there. And I remember when that person, when I first started going, I think they had three units and then within a month or two, they had nine units. But within the next year, they went from nine to 90 units. And that was incredible to me. I'd never seen that, heard of that. And at that time, I think we had just bought our, our second property, which was a three-unit building. And I was talking to her about, well, how did you make that jump? And she explained to me that there are really two ways she sees people expanding. Well, first of all, let me answer that. The way she did it was with other partners. She had investors from California who were looking to park capital in the Midwest. They liked her. They saw some stuff she was doing and they asked her that she would be open to a partnership. So she had been talking to them for some months and then decided to work with them. So she told me there are two ways she sees people make that leap into larger apartment buildings. One, you can either partner with other people and accept outside money to invest in these deals. And two, you can flip houses so you can generate more cash flow and then reinvest that into apartments. So we had just, you know, we had bought the three unit and I sat there and I thought about those options and I decided to do both. So I started flipping on the side. Yep. I had a full-time job, by the way. I started flipping yeah, on the side. And um there was a partner who was doing developments. He was buying these houses, single family houses, um, ranch style bungalows. And he was chopping off the top and doing a full second story addition. 
So he had done this for, I don't know, five or six houses. He had a trolley tour going around these city where he would show all the houses he was doing. He had like, you know, 20, 30 people that he was showing. He had his crews out there working. I mean, whole theatrical thing. Right. But I'm like, okay, this looks great. I don't really want to flip. I just want more money for apartments. So this is a great way to do it. That was my logic. Um, And then on the other side, when it comes to raising other people's money, I was still trying to figure that out because I wasn't comfortable there. Sure. An eight unit building and that eight unit building. Um, no partners, no investors, no, part, no partners at this point. So the so eight you did unit the duplex, building, the triplex, three and unit, then eight unit, the eight unit. All, we had a, all, we had a uh, one and a half million dollar portfolio by ourselves. Cool. I love and, it. And uh, yep, it was good, but there were some downsides to it. I want to make, I want to make sure we make these points. Um, we bought the eight unit building. And at that moment, my, my feelings really shifted because I, I was excited. We bought the two unit. I was nervous, but I was excited, right? We bought the three unit. I was excited. It's our first real investment property, right? Oh, yeah. With yeah. the eight unit, I was a little dejected because we had saved, you know, six figures to invest in this and we had put in this deal. So here we are now, three properties in. And I think I had just started the flip property um, shortly after two. But I'm like, man, I have no money in my bank account. Right. So I'm, I'm yep. equity rich, but I'm cash poor. I got no cash. Yep. Yep. And around the same time, my company that I was working for started having some financial issues and they ultimately ended up going through bankruptcy. So I'm like, the whole reason I got into real estate was to insulate myself from job loss. And here I am once again, faced with the circumstances of job uncertainty. And I don't have enough cash to take care of me and my family or the means right. to you know, tap into some of this equity right away. So I just really had to say, you know what, this, this is working, but it's not working fast enough or the right way. And that really warmed me up to the idea of work with other people. So um, I ended up hiring a mentor. I met a, a guy a, a month later. Um, I hired him to help me, um, you know, figure out how to, he had raised money for deals and raised a million dollars for his first deal. I'm like, well, if you can do that, then you can help me figure out what I'm supposed to do. Right. Cause I didn't know anything about deal structures and equity and all that kind of stuff. So I'm like, great. So that was huge and pivotal for me. Um, but it really does come down to the networking because quite frankly, if, if I never had that conversation with the person who went from nine to 90 and I saw it and I really saw it go from three to nine to 90, and here I go, went from two to 13 and I felt like, okay, we can scale this thing too. And I wasn't trying to get 90. I had no number attached to this, but I realized if you want to scale, you're going to have to partner with other people. Um, we, and I think you and I were on the same first deal, right? But it was a uh, deal in San Antonio, 192 yeah. unit deal. Yeah. And uh, that opportunity came to us. So we obviously partnered with other folks. You don't do a deal like that by yourself. But that was the next deal we ended up doing, you know, so it was it was huge, but it's definitely a mindset shift where sure, yeah, you have to not think so much about the unit and the size and all that. And quite frankly, the size is actually your advantage. I mean, the eight unit was all me. That risk was 100 percent me and my wife. You know, Um, I had to oversee it with a property manager. Work, lots of work. I mean, and and the thing you learn on an eight unit that sucks and anybody who's a landlord or they manage their own properties or you got small multis in your portfolio now, you'll understand this. There's not enough scale to run it like a business. So even though I had third party management and I'd run my my two unit and my three unit myself on the eight unit, 
you know, I drive by and there'd be trash and I call the property manager and say, hey, man, there's like trash in the front. No one picked up the mail, you know, the circulars and all that. And they're like, yeah, well, that's not really included in our agreement. Right. So these guys were. Yeah. Yeah. They were they were basically processors. Right. They they could anything they could do from the computer that was included in my in my my property management fee. Right. If someone had to physically come to the property and pick something up or open a door or let in someone. I got charged for it. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me, right? Because I, I went to my properties, you know, like at least once a week just to drive by and see what it looks like, make sure there's no trash and all that. And these guys charge me every time they got, you know, got in their car. Uh, so you just start to learn the nuances of like managing a smaller property and all those kind of things. And when you have a larger property, you have on-site management. So you're paying for their salaries. They're there. So you're not worried about who's going to pick up the trash they are they they, that's what their job is right so it's just you're stuck in this kind of no man's land so i tell people if you can scale up whether it be on the active or passive side i think that's a better play than having 100 percent equity in a small deal particularly if you are a busy professional if you've got time you can scrap that do it whatever you want to do sure but if you've got a full-time job you have a family you're trying to invest in the side if your goal is to put your money to work for you then you really want to think about truly being passive or transitioning into the active role so you can walk away from your W-2 um, and, and kind of buying a, a six or eight unit building where you've got to really be hands-on and you know, kind of the eyes and ears of what's happening at the property. That can be more work or really more of a second job. And I know most of us are not looking for a second job. We want to put our money to work. We're not looking just to, to work ourselves. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I, I sound like a hypocrite all the time telling people to skip to the big stuff. My first multifamily was a six unit and same deal, man, ran it all myself, ton of work, made a great return, but on a kind of a small amount of money. So at the end of the day, uh, taught me all the things I didn't want to do. So I, I, I went the same route before I kind of came to the conclusion that, that there's advantages to going bigger, which I definitely a proponent of now, but it takes your brain some time to grow. I mean, it's, Does. you know, you walk a two or 300 unit property and you just like, you just thought billionaires own these, you know, uh, and they, they do own some of them. Uh, but uh, a lot of times it's just a syndication. It's just a group of folks, those professionals, like you mentioned, that need to put 50 or hundred grand to work. And they're smart enough to know they can't be bothered running an eight unit. Well, and, and I think, I think the hard part is, some people know they can't be bothered running an eight unit. Some people learn the hard way that they yeah, probably shouldn't be bothered yeah. <laughs> running an eight unit, right? And and that's yep. why you know I share that part is, you know, if I could go back at that time, even though I knew I wanted to go full time in real estate, mm-hmm. what would have been a better transition for me is investing passively, learning the business at scale, understanding yep. how to do that, and then maybe being a little bit more active on a larger deal. And then I could kind of lead my own deals from there. Um, I kind of mentioned the flip and I didn't really finish that part of it. That was the worst thing I ever did. And Flipping the reason is, oh my goodness. I've had there, were red, there were red flags with the partner. And there was okay. a whole, I mean, I just showed you the, the, the showmanship, right? We had the trolley, we had the crew, yes. 20 people and 30 people. And uh, it was all this theatrical stuff, right? Of what was going on. So I felt like this was great. But I had a background in management, right? I had a background in working in these large corporations. So for me, it was all about how are you managing these projects? I see the crews here, see things are moving, but you know, if we're going to partner, how are we going to scale? How are you going to manage this? Because there's only 
one GC and there's you and you started with four projects and now there's six and now I'm in here and now you got eight deals going at once. You've doubled the amount of work and the amount of projects and I haven't seen the, the crew grow at all. So how do you plan <laughs> on managing this growth? And yeah. um, that's when things kind of start to fall apart. And the, the short story here is that um, he ended up not being able to manage any of that. And it was a house of cards. It fell down. And I ended up having to pick up the scraps and finish my property uh, by myself. And it was weird because he had this trolley tour. So it was kind of open and he invited people to, you know, call out whatever you see or whatever. And I remember another contractor asking, how in the world are you getting this work done for $140,000? And I remember thinking to myself, that's a great question, but clearly he has economies of scale because he's doing them all. He's buying all the materials and he's being very efficient and effective. Mm -hmm. That's gotta be the answer. Well, the real answer is uh, his plan was actually to lose. Now, I didn't, I didn't find this out until about a year or two later, but their plan was they were actually going to do a loss leader and they were going to make it up on future deals. Oh, boy. <laughs> that, that was the plan. The plan was we're going to lose $5,000 on this deal, but we're going to do enough deals where we lose $5,000 that eventually we'll be able to make up all that money. Oof. If I would have known that, obviously, there's no way in the world I would have parted with this guy because contractors right. are typically pretty good at the construction, not necessarily the business. Yep. And I had the business savvy and I was hoping to help with the business side of things. Um, but again, we, we couldn't quite get there. So nonetheless, that fell apart. I ended up having finished that deal. And going back to that question of how in the world are you getting this work done for $140,000? Well, when I had to pick up that project, if you've ever fired a contractor and had to hire a new contractor inevitably that new contractor is going to tell you it's going to cost more money. They got to go and redo the work. The last contractor did. They don't know what, yeah. how it was done. It wasn't done right. And they are happy to point out everything that contractor did wrong. They love doing know, it. I don't know how they have the magic eye to tell you everything that guy did wrong. You see, I did this here. You know, that's not too cold. You got to do it this way. So it's like siblings, uh, they, they, they <laughs> relish the opportunity to, to trash somebody else's work. Oh, like they can't wait to do it, man. They yeah. can't wait to do it. So it, it ended up costing me like the entire budget was 140 to start. It cost me another $150,000 halfway through yeah. the project. So yep. I went to the lender. The lender had a deal with that guy. And I basically told him, I said, listen, anybody who has given me money has always made their money back. And I have a you know personal policy of, if you believe in me, I want to make sure you get your money back. Yep. And even as a private lender, I believe in that. They yep. were a hard money lender. And I said, with that said, I need help. A lot of this is kind of on you guys because they, you know, you all kind of were in bed together and they had multiple projects, right? He didn't fall out just for me. He fell out for everybody else. So yep. they had about six or seven projects that were in the same state. And three of them, three of those other investors just threw their hands up, said, whatever, I lost whatever I lost. I'm not getting another dollar in this. So I said, listen, it's going to cost me more money to finish this project. But if you're willing to front that money and give me a new loan for what I need for the construction, I'm happy to pay the fees and you know, the points or whatever, I'm not happy sure. to, but I will. Um, but I'll finish your project. We'll get it sold and you'll be whole at least on this. So they looked at it and said, absolutely. I said, the alternative is here are the keys. <laughs> That's the alternative. And, yeah. and I was, I was going to lose money either way. So it was just a matter of, you know, Hey, again, character. If I said we were going to do it, you believed in me, I'll finish it off. Financially, it would have been a smart move to just walk away. I ended up losing sure. like another $15,000 um you know trying to finish the project and just fees and probably more than that actually 
Um, but we finished the project at home. The home was a nice home, sold to a nice family. Uh, but the big takeaway, one, when you're dealing with construction, you're dealing with people, you talked about that first contractor and how great he was. I mean, listen, I don't flip houses and this is why, right? I ran into this thing. And the problem with flipping is you can't, you can't make your money until you're done. That's right? right. With multifamily, I can reposition over three years and I'm still getting money coming in. There's no yep. money coming in when you're flipping. There's not a yep. dollar coming in. So you're racing the clock. And if you miss that, that buzzer, now you're racing the clock in the wrong direction, just trying to minimize the losses. And um, if you've got construction skills, you can manage it. you got a crew. Great. Go after it. That was not my skill set. You know, my wife has seen me. She would laugh at me if she saw me with a hammer. She's like, what are you doing? Put it down. <laughs> so I'm not that guy. Right. I'm not the guy. Yep. I'm, a, I'm a I'm a white collar management, property management, project management. I understand operational things. I understand marketing, advertising, that kind of stuff. Right. I understand business plans. I understand teams, understanding implementation. Those are the things that I'm really good at. It's not going to be the construction stuff. So understanding your skills is really important but also making sure you align yourself with the right people. Uh, but also in a deal structure, how do you protect yourself? In that deal structure, I, I'm so mad at myself because I completely missed how I was taking all the risk in the deal. The deal was structured in a way where um, we were going to split the profits 50-50. I put up all the capital, houses in my name, they do all the work, I manage yeah. the draw schedule, um, but we split profits 50-50. That meant that person had absolutely no penalty. Now, the one penalty is if they ran long on construction, then I could find them based like 10 by 20 bucks a day or something like that. But most contractors small don't risk have money. Yeah, yeah. That's if you're reputable and going to pay. But for them, yeah. they, they went bankrupt, right? I mean, you got a company that's like, oh, yeah, five projects closed or six projects closed. They just closed shop, right? He had no money to pay me. That was the whole reason things fell apart. He had no money. So not really helpful if you're, you're, your fail safe is for someone who doesn't have the means to, to pay you back. So if I could go back, whenever you're looking at it, I always want to make sure with my partnerships that our interests are aligned. Yes. And coming back to multifamily, when we're looking at deals, that's something I think is really appealing as a limited partner, because typically on the deal, um, you're going to invest as an LP. There may or may not be a preferred return. But if there is a preferred return, that means the first set of profits, six, seven, eight percent of profits, is going to the investor before that um, that GP gets profits. And guess what? The GP has all the risk because yep. their names are the loan. They've put up all the risk capital. They've done everything up to that point, and they've got to perform before they can hit their their numbers. And the GP team has money because they can't get approved for these loans if they're not demonstrating the net worth and liquidity to the bank. So yep. unlike that contractor I worked with who had two nickels to rub together, um, you know, if, if we do a deal, the general partnership team has to have at least the, the net worth of that loan. So even in the worst case scenario, we're going to have some exposure there. So just yep. understanding how you mitigate risk on these deals is really important. And I kind of learned that the hard way when it comes to flipping versus, you know, investing in these larger apartment deals. And that's the reason I stick to apartments now. I love it. Yeah. It's such a almost counterintuitive thing when you go for these larger projects that uh, they're de-risked in so many ways, even though there's more commas, dollars are bigger. Um, 
the other thing too is the quality of the players involved. I mean, you know that GPE Absolutely. team that's buying a $10 million deal. If they're qualifying for that loan, <laughs> they, they've done something in their life. To- Somebody got $10 million. Yep. Right. It's just that simple. Like you cannot yep. get a loan without someone having the $10 million either as a collective or as an individual. So yep. uh, to your point versus you found a great contractor, a great handyman who's got a deal and, you know, he needs $50,000. If he doesn't have any money, then you have no recourse. Yep. You just don't, you know, you maybe yeah, you can win a judgment against like him that. all day long. That's yeah, it's not going to pay. If he doesn't have it, it's not, it's not paying out. Yeah. Um, I love it, man. And it's just so many lessons in here. And I think so many of us have gone through similar things and we're trying to, you know, help people skip some of these steps, but a lot of these are character building lessons too. So you kind of, you know, you kind of take the good with the bad. Um, I want to learn though, as you transition to raising capital, which is a huge mindset shift, you know, if you didn't mm-hmm. grow up doing this or, or, you know, whatever, your parents didn't do it. It's, it can be a new concept to a lot of us. How did you apply what you've done in the professional world, marketing and stuff like that to, to start to raise capital? And where, where did you find that first set of investors? That's a great question, right? Because it's not very instinctive for a lot of people. If you have a sales right. background or something like that, maybe it is. But for me, it was very challenging. You know, I didn't want to ask people for money. That's what sure. I saw it as. It's like, sure. you know, other people, I don't want to ask people for money. And um, I think starting out, it, it it took some some work and some practice, but the biggest shift that I had was I wasn't asking people for money. And you know, we we tell kind of our coach clients this, and um, it was told to me, but it still took a second to process. But you're not asking people for money; you're giving them an opportunity. Yeah. Now, the reason it took me a minute to process, and you know, it may take you a moment to process, is when we say that yes, you need the money to do the deal, but if you are confident in what you're doing and that you are truly trying to serve other people and help other people, then you're providing a service to them. So think about it this way. If I were a CPA, okay, I obviously make my money being a CPA, doing accounting services and tax services for other people and other businesses, right? So when I go to people, I'm sharing with them how I can help them. They know I'm a CPA. So a lot of that's intuitive, but I'm sharing how I can help them. And if I can do that, they're obviously going to pay me. If you're a real estate investor, you're going to share how you can help people. Well, I'm going to help you get some passive income. I'm going to help you, you know, uh, diversify your portfolio. I'm going to help you, you know, pay less in taxes potentially. You know, I'm going to help you get exposure to larger multifamily, right? And be able to talk to me about how some of this stuff works. Well, you're adding value to people in that, that light. And a lot of times people just focus on, the amount of money they need. I need a million dollars. I need half a million dollars. I got to raise half a million dollars. So you're yep. not really thinking about the other end of that equation. You might need a half a million dollars. Why would someone give you half a million dollars? They yep. won't unless they're getting something out of it. So just like any other business, focus on what they're getting out of it. And then, then you can talk about kind of that equation. And I think when I, when I really understood that I was adding value to other people, everything kind of clicked. And the sales and marketing and my professional background really kicked in once I treated it as a business, right? Because it's easy to get caught up in what you're doing. I need to raise X amount of dollars so I can do this deal. But if you say, okay, I have a service-based business that helps other people diversify their income to get into real estate without being a landlord themselves and earn a little bit of passive income so they have more time to pursue their passions, right? That's what I was trying to do. And if you understand that, now I understand 
how I can help people, the conversations I'm having with people, and helping them identify whether or not it's a fit, fit for them. Uh, we, we particularly help busy professionals, people who you know, have a full-time job, they're making good money now, whether they want to quit at some point or they enjoy what they do, but they've got money that they want to put to work and they want to earn better returns than they're getting currently. They have some familiarity with real estate. They know real estate's a great pathway to grow their portfolio, to build generational wealth, but maybe they don't have either the knowledge or the time or the experience to feel comfortable investing all by themselves. They want to avoid, you know, partnering with that contractor that I talked about or dealing with the resident headaches and, you know, all the, the COVID rent restrictions and all that kind oh, of yeah. stuff, right? Yeah. They, they just want to put their money to work and get a return. So if you're thinking about either a turnkey property or a REIT or something like that, you should strongly consider investing in, you know, deals like we have and also like Devin has. Um, into an apartment syndication deal because you get the benefits and the perks of being a real estate investor without the headaches of actually being the person having to manage it. And understanding that and getting comfortable with that really helped us raise more money for our deals. And I'll tell you, it all 100% clicked the first time someone said, thanks for bringing me this opportunity. Yeah, that's right. Right. When you When you get a thanks from someone else, you understand you are helping other people, right? Because I had investors who had, you know, they, they wanted to diversify. They were facing a huge tax bill and our deals helped them. They helped them reduce their tax liability, help give them cash flow, help them reduce their exposure to a crazy wild stock market. And yep. that's the value we provide. So I think mentally you have to make that shift of what you're doing. Um, hiring a mentor or coach is a great way to do that. If you're looking to, you know, scale and you want to be an active investor, I think it's really important because just like we talked about the mine and the, the bigger deals, what I just said may take a minute to really process. I mean, it I, I it people, takes a while. To, people, yeah. people told me that all the time, right? It, it was probably yeah. like the 10th time it finally clicked to say, oh, <laughs> now I get what you mean, right? I'm, yep. not, I'm not asking for money. I'm giving an opportunity. It just sounded like BS to me at first. Yeah, yeah, okay. yep. I'm not asking you for money. I'm giving you an opportunity. It just sounds like some sales stuff, right? Yeah, so, it sounds terrible, yeah. <laughs> it sounds terrible. If you don't believe it, how is somebody else going to believe it? And I'll, right. I'll leave with this. I'll leave with this, right? If you're looking to raise money for deals, um, and I, I call it attracting money for deals, I think there are three C's you got to be aware of, okay? All right. The first is confidence. Confidence comes from putting in the work. It cannot be manufactured. It cannot be blind hubris. It cannot be faked. You cannot fake it till you make it with confidence. Either you believe you're really helping people, you believe in the deals, you believe in the knowledge, you believe in the markets, or you're faking it and you don't. And if you don't have that real genuine confidence, you're not going to be in a great position to help people because it's going to come across. You're going to come across scared or desperate or whatever that emotion is. So you have to take the time to really develop that skill to put in the work. And again, mentorships, uh, books, podcasts, educating yourself. You got to put in the work, underwriting deals, learning about markets. You got to just put in the work. Confidence is key. Second C, credibility. What have you done or what can you tap into from your background that makes you legitimate in this space? Who's on your team? Who else has that experience? Who else do you have around you that's going to be involved that has the demonstrated expertise to do whatever it is you're saying you're going to do? That credibility has to be there. And then the last C is connections. Who are you talking to? Are you talking to people constantly? Do you have a platform to meet new people who are interested about these opportunities? But you have to find new connections and expand your network so you can consistently attract capital for these deals. So those three C's, 
confidence, credibility, and connections. If you focus on those three things, you will be able to attract capital for your deals consistently. I love it. That's such a succinct overview. You've done it. I've done it. Others have done it. We're not reinventing the wheel here. We're just putting in the work in order to get those, uh, those three C's. I love it, John. Thank you. Um, this has been great. I appreciate you sharing your story. There's a ton in here that I know people listening to can relate to. If somebody wants to connect with you, learn more, more about your world, how are they doing that? Two things. One, we've got our podcast called Multifamily Insights. Devin's been on there uh, a couple of times. So uh, definitely check out that show. It's a great podcast where we talk about everything from uh, investing in multifamily, either through your own personal portfolio or doing syndications. Uh, and the other thing is, if you want to wrap your head more around what I was just talking about, we have a sample deal package. And this is great for active That's investors. It's a great resource. Yeah. Yeah. It's great for active and passive investors, just because I think for, for passive investors in particular, it's one thing, again, we just talked about wrapping your head around stuff, right? It, it's hard to go from a conversation about this to looking at a live deal and being ready yeah. to pull the trigger. So yeah. I think this gives you a chance to wrap your head around the terminology, the deal structure, you know, market, the team, and start to get a sense of, okay, what questions should I be asking? And if you're an active investor, you want to make sure you're presenting your deals in the right light. Make sure you're including the right information. Make sure you're professional. Making sure you're presenting yourself as someone who is confident and credible, right? So it gives you a chance to start to think about what should be in there. And I advise you to check that out. It is a resource that is available with no cost right now. And we'll send you some follow-up information. You'll get on our, our email newsletter. And we have a follow-up email that tells you the seven things you must look for on any deal that you are reviewing. So whether you're active or passive, I think it's a great resource. Check it out at kasmancapital.com slash sample deal. Awesome. We'll link to that in the show notes. If you're listening, just go down to the description and click right through. Check out John and his company. John, great catching up, man. I wish you success in the in the year ahead. And uh, thanks for jumping on today. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me, Devin. All right. Talk soon. Thank you for listening to the DJE Podcast. For more information, please go to DJETexas.com.